Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hempsler, developmental <laughs> interventionist. How are you tonight, Laura? You're just right on time, aren't you? I had 19 <laughs> seconds to spare. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Did you hear me have a little disfluent moment there when I was trying to click you on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. I was trying to make myself call moms before the show, so I was like, okay, call this one, call this one, call this one. So anyway, I'm done and I'm ready. Well, good, 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 good. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. This might be the last time we speak before Friday, though. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to hold basketball against me, are you? Heck no. I'm looking for you to hold it against me. That would be the second time we beat the the Wildcats this season. Should we be lucky enough to do it again, that is. We'll see how I'm it I'm really goes. not that optimistic, but, you know, if you could beat them once, then there's always that chance. But they're looking well, pretty darn good. I had the pleasure of watching the Wildcats play in person, both on Thursday and yesterday. And, boy, they are looking great. And we're going to Atlanta to see them play. Uh, Johnny wants me to say Cat Atlanta, but I know you hate it when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> can blame that on him. We're going to those games next weekend, and I did want to say we will not be having the show next weekend because one of us probably will be pretty darn upset since Kentucky plays IU. Oh, so we'll, I'm not we'll sure. take I know the I weekend off. I Honestly, I would not have predicted IU to make it this far, and we haven't exactly uh, annihilated our opponents, so <laughs> mm, I think this could be it. But, hey, Sweet 16 pretty good for a comeback year. I think so, too. They've had a great year. Mm-hmm. So I will be doing basketball next weekend, too, and I'll just have to say I'm really tired. Basketball wears me out when I go watch <laughs> those games in person. <laughs> well, so you'll go Friday for the IU-Kentucky game, and should Kentucky win, then do you stay for a game Sunday? We're staying for Sunday. We're there the whole weekend. Cool. Yes, so we'll be coming back on Monday, which is why I think it'll be too hard to do the show. I've done it on the road before. Yeah. But we won't do it this weekend. I'll probably not have a voice by that time. I was worried about today with being a little really? bit hoarse, but it's come back. Oh, yeah, from the from the vocal abuse. So there you go. We're also yeah. not going to have a therapy tip of the week. Johnny wants me to announce because we usually get those up on Friday, and we will be traveling on Friday this week. So the last week's therapy tip of the week we'll have to hold, and it was really cute. It's on Easter ideas, so activities for therapy. With Easter eggs and how to liven that up a little bit and not be so boring with uh, the same old thing. I'll send you the link. I don't think I did it. And I think that's usually when you watch them is when I make it really I'm better easy. better you do that. <laughs> email it to you. So I'll make my little note here. Email K Therapy Tips of the Week. I do like the Therapy Tips of the Week, though. I'm going to have to watch it to get inspired for the Easter theme. And dig your Easter eggs out, or you might be like me and just go spend three more dollars and not really care. A lot of years it's worth it to me just to spend the money rather than trying to find Easter eggs from the previous year. Well, and you know what? I did actually find mine because we finally sold our old house and I moved everything out of there, and they were among that stuff. 
But they have some really cute ones out this year with themes and, you know, really kind of different yeah. stuff. There are some cute ones out. I've seen them, too. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so there's some different ideas with how to work on that. I also have a board on teachmetotalk.com's Pinterest page with lots of other Easter ideas that did not make it into Therapy Tip of the Week. So for therapists who are addicted to Pinterest, check out, uh, and moms too, check out that board because there's some really cute ideas on there as well. And I forgot to ask you how Pinterest is going for you. I always forget about that at a time when we could, when I could perhaps be more helpful to you about that. I haven't really tried it, Laura. I haven't done anything more than gotten on there and gotten a name, but nothing else. And every time I get a notice that somebody's following me, I think, oh, no. (laughs) The pressure. Well, Well, the embarrassment. There's nothing on there to follow. Once you get started with it, it's kind of a thing that you do while you while you do other stuff, like while you're watching television or, you know, it's just one of those right. filler things. So right. once you get started, you can just follow all my boards and teachmetotalk.com's boards, and then you'll have lots of other stuff. You can just repin everything, and it'll look like you've been really busy. Oh, that's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> Finally knew I'll how to you. do it. <laughs> I know. I might just have to get your password and just set it up for you and then say, here you go. Thank you. That would be perfect. (laughs) That's funny. All right, moving right along. On um, teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page this week, I posted a really good article. It's a link to an article. I think it goes, I think it was from Yahoo, but it's about um, a study that was done with the 25 words every toddler should understand and use by two. And this researcher called it the beginnings of a really nice core vocabulary. And I also like the article because it had some red flag issues in there so that if a parent were reading it and thought, gosh, my kid doesn't know any of this, is this a big deal? The article pretty much said, don't panic, but you better get on this because language is really, really important. And they also gave some other um, information that was similar to what we talked about last week, that the average toddler at two uses between 75 and 225 words and can turn those words into phrases. And so I love that there's that a researcher is not just quoting the bare minimum expectation that they went ahead and put that higher number in as well because I think that's shocking to lots of parents. And I wish that we could really just automatically get a big red alert about this information out to pediatricians because I think, like we talked about last week, that they unknowingly pass along false information to lots of parents. Mm-hmm. So it was a good article, and I encouraged people on uh, Facebook to share the article with even friends. Sometimes, you know, and I, I get to do this all the time since this is the main part of what I do now is educate other people. And so I think people on my f- Facebook page, even on my personal page, just think it's normal for me to post these kinds of articles about um, late talking and child development and how important language is. And lots of people that I that are kind of uh, friends I haven't seen in a long time or maybe they're grandparents now and they'll email me or Facebook me back and say, God, 
gosh, I didn't know that. I'm really now worried about this child based on this information. So you never know who you're going to help by sharing that kind of personal or that kind of professional information, even within your personal circle. So if you're a therapist or a mom and you're not currently doing that, do that. That's one of the reasons that we share information. It's not so that we can just keep it to ourselves so that we can pass it along to other families who might not have a good source and who may also really benefit from that information. So I wanted to uh, pass that along. And so feel free to use that share feature on Facebook and share all those cool articles that you see posted about development because it's really, really, really important. Hmm. All right, Kate, do you have any announcements before we get rolling? What did you say? I said share, eh? I didn't even know you could really do that. See, I'm no better at Facebook than I'm at Pinterest. Oh, my gosh. It's good to know, though. I might try to try do that. You need to have all this stuff on your cool iPad so that it's all just right there. It's all, yeah. all you know, that's that's how you should be using that, or for part of the time, using that cool technology that you have. I know, I know. I, I'm just a little behind. I'm coming. I just need I'm just to come a little spend behind. an afternoon with you and just. <laughs> I I don't have an iPad, but I'm sure I could figure out how to do all that. Well, I know how to do it on the iPad. I do. I just don't. So. Well, sometimes you just want to get away from it all, don't you? I do. I'm just not that technologically gifted. Well. Hmm. I don't quite know what to say about that. <laughs> Those would be interesting ways for you to use all that good stuff. Okay, moving right along. I'm feeling like we're having a little lag. All right, tonight we are on part three of this series, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. And this is all information from my new book of the same name. And I've gotten... Um, so many emails about this book. I'm glad people are excited about it, but mostly the emails say, when's that darn book going to be out? Or, I'm listening to your show, and I really need you to go a little faster because the kid that I'm concerned about is further along than what you're talking about, and I want to hear what I should be doing. And I I saw a therapist. um, I had the opportunity to see her baby, and she's a DI like you, Kate, and she's somebody that I love and worked with a Ten years ago, and she listens to the podcast, and she was laughing about that, saying, get on with it. Let's hear the next part. (laughs) So I thought that was really cute, really, really cute. And then on Friday, I saw a little boy that I've been seeing, and his dad, um, I'd never met his dad before, and so he came to the door, and he's like, oh, I recognize you from the DVD, and I thought that was cute, too. And Johnny was with me because we videoed this little guy, and Johnny's never heard anybody. He's heard people say that at conferences, but he's never had heard a parent say that to me before at the door, so that was kind of cute, it's somebody's too. front door. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was kind of cute. All right, moving right along. Boy, can you tell I'm tired. I keep just Wait, give us distracted. the name of your book again, Laura. I'm having trouble committing this to memory. I want to hear it again. Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. Okay. Soon to be on sale on my website, and we sell all products exclusively from there. I do get quite a few emails that will say, <laughs> Where, what Amazon? bookstore can I buy this in? Uh-huh. So anyway, all right, here we go. 
Level three, um, we've talked about the first two parts, so if you are late coming to this party, go back and listen to those first shows so that we won't have to, um, so that you'll understand more background uh, with what we talk about and, and the thing, the precursors to this level. In level one, we want to teach kids how to imitate actions with objects. Last week, we talked about helping children learn how to imitate communicative gestures, and that would include some sign language after they've mastered the the uh, kinds of behaviors, the kinds of gestures that we talked about last week, the things that come before that. And again, I'm going to try really not to be repetitive tonight, so go listen to those shows if you've not done that so you can catch up to where we are tonight. So tonight we are at level three, and level three in this process is teaching toddlers how to imitate actions with their faces and with their mouths. And again, remember the reason that we're talking about this approach is that so many children need those in-between baby steps to get from learning how to imitate anything and learning how to do imitate an action or motor imitation comes before verbal imitation in every single kid. It's just part of development. It's part of that developmental continuum. And I have never met a kid that talks that could not imitate actions on some level. So you want to be sure that you're beginning there. And, again, we're moving forward to what do you do for all those kids who <laughs> who aren't at the point where you say a word and then they know how to repeat it. Lots of kids with language delays and speech-language disorders need all of these in-between baby steps. So the next little step in that is teaching them how to do things purposefully with their faces and with their mouths. And if you've never thought about this before or worked on this before, I bet that you still had a lot of kids do this if you're a therapist, but you've not really realized they're doing it. And isn't it funny, Kate, the best example that I can always think of this is when we ourselves recognize that a child on our caseloads that we've worked with for a while is doing us, is doing mm-hmm. a facial expression <laughs> that we do, or, again, some kind of little weird, quirky thing that you don't even maybe not even realize that you're doing, and you it makes when you see a child do it, you stop and go, "Oh my goodness, she's laughing like I do. She's making the same kind of face that I'm making right now. She's using my um surprised eyes, you know when you raise your eyebrows and when you um you know you make your whole face like, "Oh or wow, and you see a kid start to do that really widen their eyes and make their mouths uh, maybe into a circle or something. And it's, again, this is for a lot of kids, this happens before they start to really imitate words. So um, I'm sure you've you've seen that happen with kids before. Kate, I always tell that story about you and that little boy that we used to see together. I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> I talk about it, oh, every six weeks or so on the show, don't I? Not that often. You're talking about the little guy who imitated my laugh, and it, he had to do it a few times before I realized, I guess that really is me, because it was just, I, I didn't even realize that that's what my laugh looked like. That was the the uh, difficult part about it. But once I watched him a few times, I thought, yep, that's what he's doing. He kind of opened his mouth real big and his teeth, yeah, I mean, almost like a horse, and I thought, that's me. <laughs> I knew I knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. I thought he's you doing Kate. Oh my yeah, gosh, I remember I didn't calling you. It for a little while. <laughs> so funny. 
I remember calling him and saying, oh, my gosh, he laughs just like you. <laughs> and, again, this was really before he was too verbal, if I remember correctly. Right. And he was walking along this continuum of learning how to imitate. And so this is something that you look for. And so it's it's great when you can purposefully begin to model these kinds of things for kids to imitate. So... I've already given some examples of that, widening your eyes or making your eyes really, really big like you're surprised. Other things that I do, if I'm just playing with the kid, I might puff my cheeks with air, you know, how you fill them up, and then you push them in and make a silly noise like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you do that with kids? <laughs> I don't usually do that one, no. You know when I, I do it? I can see it, though. Yeah, and I used to do it when I had um uh, when I played with Pigs the Clown all the time because something of that's a little Discovery Toys old Jack in the Box that's really simple and I don't play with that as much. I guess there's something about his face that always reminds me to do that. And mm-hmm. since I haven't played with that toy in a really long time, I guess that's why I haven't done it lately, but that's kind of a fun thing to do. Um, Other things that I bet that other people do is when you pretend to eat. And again, at this phase, we're talking about it really without sound. It's really when you're not really doing anything that's sound or word related, when you're just doing facial expressions. But sometimes I'll act like I'm going to eat something that's not edible, like a bubble. I think we talked about that last week. Or I'm pretending to eat food. And I might not even make the sound, but I chew up and down or chatter my teeth. And sometimes you'll see a kid really think that's so hysterical that that's one of the first times that you'll start to see this kind of facial imitation and again for a lot of kids they need this piece and they can't quite put sound with it yet you're going to have to stay at this level for a little while now some kids will surprise you and will immediately begin to interject vocalizations and that's with these kinds of facial expressions and that's level four and if you have a kid that does that more power to him move him right along this is not an approach that's set in stone that you have to do for so many weeks or that you have to have a certain percentage of accuracy. You know, it always cracks me up when somebody asks me that in a conference. You know, what what level of accuracy should I be working at before I move on to the next goal? And I always want to say, you know, who cares about that? But sometimes <laughs> so many therapists are so academic about it. You know, I want to say you'll just know, but sometimes people don't know and need Mm -hmm. more of a specific criterion worked out. And I just say, when you are really comfortable that a kid demonstrates whatever the behavior or skill is at at levels in this approach, if he can do several, and if you notice him using things from a higher level, he's telling you, get the show on the road, move on, Mm -hmm. teach me something new here. The reason that you want to make sure, though, that kids have several before you purposefully move on is so that you're not moving too fast. So if you don't see that evidence of higher-level stuff coming in, you know for sure that a kid's not ready to move on yet. So anyway, or most of the time. Boy, every time I say something like for sure, I think, oh, I better not say it like that because there could be one kid that would be the exception. So you know what I mean with that. 
All right, so other things you could do, and again, some therapists might think about this as oral motor stuff as you're having a kid imitate smacking your lips or lateralizing your tongue, which is for a two-year-old we would never say, I want to see you lateralize your tongue from side to side. You would say, let's wiggle, wiggle your tongue, or better yet, not even give that kind of... um, verbal direction at all because some of our kids, especially those kids with apraxia, if you're giving them that instruction, it just pretty much ensures that they can't do it. So more often than not with toddlers, you're not even really talking about it or giving the verbal direction. You're just doing it. You're modeling it and then you are setting the stage and really facilitating uh, everything that you can do so that they will imitate that movement. And you always put it in play. You can't really belt the kid in a high chair and say, you know, we're going to be working on level three activities today. That's imitating actions with your face and mouth. And then just sit there and model these things, hoping that the kid will catch on and imitate back. You need to interject all of these activities in play. And the book gives you lots and lots of ideas with how to do that and how to make that fun and what materials to use and really spells out that whole um, approach or whole, this kind of idea and gives you lots of directions and lots of examples for actions that you could use with your own face and mouth to get a kid moving about the, like that. Some therapists come by this really naturally and would know exactly what I mean, but some of us need more guidance and um, a framework or a roadmap So this will be your tool for that and and tell you exactly um, what kinds of things you could try. I think I could use some additional help on this. I do some of it, but I don't do as much as what it describes is in the book. So that will be good for me to have. Well, and I think it's pretty cool when a kid will do this. And this, again, especially for kids that you've kind of tried your – standard things and your mm-hmm. routine things and you feel like, oh, he's not getting it. Oh, I need some new ideas. What am I going to do? The, I think these um, this really specific help will get lots of therapists and moms over that hump. And a lot of times people know that there has to be something in between, but they're just not quite sure what that is. And right. so hopefully... This will spell that out. So other things you could do, again, uh, we've already talked about the different things you could do with your tongue. You could lateralize it or wiggle it. You could click it. I always do that when I'm talking, uh, when we're playing with a horse and making the horse walk. I think about that as a clip-clop, clip-clop. But, again, at this level, you don't need to really be doing words or sounds yet. You need, well, you know, you, you may have some sounds there, like with the clicking, but they're not necessarily speech sounds yet. And the important thing, the level that you'll say that the kid has met the goal is when he tries to imitate that facial or that mouth movement. It's not necessarily 100% you know, accuracy that you're going for. Any kind of, sometimes the kid will barely stick his tongue out when I've modeled that wiggling and I'm you know, saying, yes, that's it. When a mom might say, what did he do? You know, she missed it. <laughs> she didn't want to give him credit unless he, you know, lateralizes ten times consecutively. And that's not the point, especially with toddlers that we're working with. You're just going for that attempt at imitation. And I think you talked about that some last week, Kate, about how that the the whole just that they start to do it is right. 
is where we want to really praise and focus and not be so perfectionistic that we don't give a kid credit for what he's trying to do that's obviously very, very hard for him to do. Right. I guess I do some of it. I do the, the most, <clears throat> oh, I don't know, natural or play-based stuff, yeah. like blowing, trying to get them. So, it's amazing how many kids cannot get their lips out to blow that we work with. It's amazing, now, always, isn't it? Hmm. I always do the dog <laughs> panting one. I, I love the dog panting, and that seems to be highly motivating for lots of little kids. I usually do pretending sleeping. A lot. Yeah, like a story. And, you know, actually, I had those panting and sleeping. I had that, that next level up. Remember in this, I tried really hard to break it down into very small, teeny, tiny baby steps. And for some kids, they can't get to the panting and they can't get to the snoring because they haven't figured out, oh, I do that with my mouth. And I've worked with a lot of kids that I think, you know, oh my gosh, this is the first time, this is the first day that he realizes that he can control his lips and his tongue. Have you had a kid like that before that you think, you just now realize that's in your mouth, bud? Oh, yes, many times. I think, yay, we've made some progress. <laughs> I know. And so those those are the kids that really need this specific focus. Now, this level also includes... More, um, again, tools that speech pathologists might think of as oral motor uh, tools or exercises. But, again, I don't want any therapist or mom listening to this thinking that you're going to implement this oral motor program, you know, that it's very... um, that it's not play-based. This is still really, really... Uh, like I said before, interject it into your play so that it's not something that you do outside of what you already do. I mean, all of us already play with farm animals. All of us already use lots of toys and and do some of this. And what I want to attempt to do is help therapists and parents make it more purposeful so that children begin to imitate these kinds of things too. And, again, not every late talker will need every single part of this, but this level three stuff is where lots of our kids who have severe motor planning problems, you know, severe apraxia, who aren't talking, you know, at two and a half and marching toward three and they're still not talking. Sometimes we need to back up to this level and work on this kind of stuff before we're able to get them to move forward. And I say in the book that level three is most often my fallback level. When I can't get anything else to work and I'm just thinking, dear God, help me know what to do for this kid, this is more often where you back way up to, especially with a kid whose play is pretty good and who's, who's and who may already be signing. But I get that question a lot. And haven't we had that question a lot on the podcast, Kate, where a therapist or a mom will say, He's signing, but I can't get him past that. I can't get anything resembling a word imitation. Or he seems kind of stuck at signing. What should I try next? This would be your next step that you really try and that you really work on. And, again, sometimes it's overlooked with toddlers. Sometimes it's initiated with toddlers but in the wrong way. Again, I can't think of a more inappropriate thing to do than to – Put a two, belt a two-year-old in a high chair and say, you know, do it's this, oral do motor this. time. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's my two vets. There are no two vets in this program. <laughs> you are not going to be a kid doesn't need to do anything passively. You're not going to be doing anything in his mouth. The kid still has to figure out a way to use his own mouth because that's the only way he's going to talk. You can't pull those words out. You can't really manipulate his little mouth and make him do it. There's still that initiation on his part that he needs to do. And I think the book does a decent job of talking about how to make it more fun and how to make it more likely that he will imitate. You know, this is not prompt. This is not where you're really physically manipulating his mouth. This is just setting the stage to make it easier for him to begin to imitate uh, facial and mouth movements. And, again, not every late talker is going to need this, thank God. (laughs) But those that do... This will be some ideas. Um, and horns and whistles, there's some ways in the book to work on that. And it, especially our little kids with uh, low tone sometimes really, really need the whole horn and whistle hierarchies and need practice with that because they need to build respiratory support. And more than anything, they just need to learn that their little mouths are under their own control because they eat reflexively they, you know, laugh and breathe maybe, and well, for sure, but they don't, still don't really realize that they control that and they control their lip movements and their tongue movements and how they use their voices. So, again, this is a way to move through that process and break it down in a little bitty steps. Uh, other things that are fun for kids at this level are musical instruments like um, – little recorders or we've already talked about whistles. Um, those little whistles that I like so much are the ones that look like lips, those little sireny things that mm-hmm. worked on either inhalation or exhalation. And I like this a lot. And I ordered my last bunch of those from Amazon. I can't even find those even in party stores or at Target. And 10 years ago, they were everywhere, weren't they? Yeah, I didn't realize they'd gone missing. Hmm. Have you looked for those lately? No, I can't say that I have. I have had them over the years, but I haven't purchased any in a long time. You know, and I think, too, this kind of thing is really dependent on the kid. I've worked with lots and lots and lots of children who I never used a whistle or a horn for, and they still ended up talking. So, again, not every kid is going to need this kind of approach, and I don't want anyone to think that I've had a big change of heart and now I'm really pushing oral motor stuff. Now you're doing nothing but oral motor stuff, huh? (laughs) Yeah, that's not it. That's not it at all. It's just for those kids who really, really need it. And that's the cool part about this job. And that's what never makes it, this job does not get boring. Because just when you think you have it all figured out, you get a new kid who needs something different than your normal approach. And and again, I'm not saying that we're going to use this as the only thing we would do for a kid. This is just part of your play-based uh, routine that you would use. This is something I like to pass that horn and whistle piece over as a homework piece to moms because it's something that they can do. Um, and there's some real specific instructions in the book about that. I like, um, and you can even get more, a lot more technical and picky than me um, by looking at talk tools um, information and getting their whole horn and whistle hierarchy. And again, the stuff that I have in um, in my book 
is nowhere near on that technical level because although that might be appropriate for some kids, not all parents can follow that. And certainly not all toddlers are going to need that level of work to kind of get them ready to push on through to the next phase. So I wanted to mention that too. So that's level three. And I'm not going to go through all of those things because tonight I'm hoping that we can zip through several levels, unlike the past two weeks where we've really talked exclusively and uh, what am I trying to say, Kate, where we've really, uh, really talked about something over and over and over, and we're not doing that tonight. We're zipping right through. So, yeah, Johnny said we were perseverating for the last two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I've taught him way too many fancy words for him to be able to use that on me. Yeah. So that's level three. Any questions, comments, or anything about that, Kate? Nope. Just to yeah. review that is to do oral and facial movements, expressions, whatever, without sound. Yeah. Yeah. And if a kid makes sound, you don't say, no, 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 no. Shh. You're not supposed to be making sound. You don't do that. <laughs> Then in your mind, you know, oh, my gosh, he's got it. He's ready to move on, especially when he does that with lots of different things. And that's the cool thing about um, having these ideas, too. Every chapter and every level in the book will has a section on prerequisites, meaning what a child needs to be doing before you're working on this skill, and it's very plainly spelled out, then it says if you have a kid who can't do X, Y, Z, you need to back up and address, you know, this whole list of things. So it's really, really specific like that. So that it would take um, purposeful ignoring of written information for you to be working at the wrong level with the kid. And, And that happens a lot, doesn't it? Haven't you worked on teams with therapists, Kate, that you think, no wonder he's not doing as well for that other therapist or or even us when we've had kids in the past where we think, why isn't he making any progress when we've worked on a goal that's too hard or at the right level? Right. And I will say, Laura, that how do I want to put it positively? I think there are some therapists out there who, who really like oral motor stuff and they may know quite a bit about it. Of course, I'm referring to speech therapists here. Right. But the biggest mistake I see is that they kind of do it um, separate from play. It really is that right. I'm going to put you in the high chair. And, right. you know, what two-year-old is really going to be, I mean, the only reason that you can get them to do it or any other therapist can get them to do it is because they're being really, really fun and funny and animated and goofy and, you know, using cool toys and, you know, there's a lot of motivation involved and to just kind of say, now we're going to stick out our tongues. Now you do it, you know. I mean, most kids are like, right, you know, there's no way is that going to happen. These are not kids who do that easily, so I guess I'm just hoping that those people who buy your book really um, pay attention to the play, play, play part because right. if you can't motivate them having fun with the play part, you're not going to get them to do these things. So. Exactly. And you do you do have to be, and this is all in the book, and, boy, we have talked about this a lot on the show, 
the adult's affect and how the adult models it, and again, like you said, fun, 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 play, 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 that's got to be even more a part of this kind of stuff. If you even have a prayer of trying to get a two-year-old to do it, it, it can't really be blah and plain and boring and if you're losing a kid's attention you know that it's because you haven't made it cool enough or either he's developmentally not there yet and you know those that's always those are the two reasons every single time or there's you know a distractor in the environment but those are the reasons that a kid won't do stuff it's either he's not ready yet or you haven't made it relative or fun enough so, again, uh, nowhere is that more important than in this approach. Last week I talked about this a little bit at the end of the show, and I said we were going to talk about emotional contagion and what that means. And contagion, you know, again, is always like contagious. It spreads. Oh, boy, my voice is really <clears throat> all that cheering I've done the past couple of games. Boy, that's coming back to haunt me now because I'm getting hoarse as we talk. But the whole cheering, the whole um <laughs> Contagion. Contagion, yes. That whole part, you have to, if you want a kid to be engaged and you want a kid to really be with you and you want a kid to be excited about what you're doing, you have to be that way first. If you want a parent to buy into your program and to participate in therapy and to believe what you say, you have to model that first. And so many times when I when I talk to therapists about that, and I always use that little phrase, ratchet it up a notch, when you start doing that, not only do the kids do better that you're working with, the parents do better too because mm-hmm. they've really caught your um, your excitement and your affect and your um, joy for making these, you know, working on communication with their children and really bumping up your own engagement level and your own interaction level. And it can get to the point where it becomes autopilot, where you just kind of lapse into that and that's just your therapy persona, but you might have to work at the beginning to really make that happen. But it makes such a huge, huge difference with um, all the babies that we work with, the toddlers, preschoolers, and certainly with their parents as well. And, Kate, this is where every time we talk about this, you always say, you might have to fake it. (laughs) You might have to really make yourself do it at the beginning if this is not your normal personality. And we have talked to lots and lots of therapists about this who've called the program Mm -hmm. over the years. And it's huge at this at this part too. Even when you're teaching object actions with objects, when you're teaching communicative gestures like sign language, and especially when you get to this level, you can't just have a boring old face and expect a kid to imitate that. <laughs> You've got to really bump it up so that you are communicating and you are over modeling and really exaggerating. Uh, what you would want a kid to start to learn to do with his face and his mouth. And it's really cool. If you've never worked on this kind of thing before, and then when you start to see it happen, you'll think, I can't believe I did that. That really was pretty darn great. Uh, because it makes <laughs> and a it big worked. difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knew? It really worked. Uh, so that's a big, big, big thing that I want to uh, 
be sure that we're talking about, especially for the kids who are really struggling to imitate any words. If, if you've got kids that are uh, that you think, gosh, his, his verbal imitation is so inconsistent, what can I do? A lot of times you're going to back up to this level and then move a kid forward, and it's going to get a lot easier from this point on. Okay, so that was level three. Level four is when you start to imitate vocalizations in play. Now, remember, we're not quite to words yet, but, Kate, you already talked about a couple of great examples that I love at this level. Panting like a dog, which for those of you who don't know what that means, that's <laughs> like a dog would, uh, when a dog is thirsty, they stick out their tongue and make that sound. That imitation is one of the first ones that I often get with kids. They think it's funny. It's pretty easy, and again, if you are playing with toys that two-year-olds like, often there's a dog involved with that, with uh, whatever animal set you're using, or a puzzle, or even a book. Um, so many times families have dogs as their family pets, so you, lots of opportunities that uh, dog was one of the 25 words that the research that I referred to earlier, that made the list. So it's a really, really common um, noun in a child's environment. So it's a cool sound to try to elicit. And uh, physically, it's pretty easy for a kid to do. He has to open his mouth and breathe <laughs> and have a little bit of effort put on that to uh, help that that exhalation become more controlled and more purposeful, and it's so cute, too. Who can resist a little two-year-old with his tongue out <laughs> doing that little panting? So it's, it's a great, And it's great one of my early thing. ones, too, because kids really love it and they really try it. hard to get it. Uh-huh. Yeah, love it. And when love I get it, it, I think, yay, they're, we're on our way. way. Moms always think it's really, really cute, too. The sound that's related to that, too, if a kid's not already doing this trick, is the drink trick where you drink and then go, ah. you know, dads love that sound, love to teach that sound to lots of toddlers. So if a dad says to me or a mom, oh, he already does that with the drink, or if that's one of the things that they report as a trick or if they, if it just comes up that he does it, then I try to get the pant for the dog. Or if I get the pant first, I always say to the mom, you know how you, else you could get this? You know that that silly trick we teach the, all our babies when they take a drink to do a big after, you know, let's try to get him to do that too because you know that he can do that and you've you've extended that, that same physical behavior or skill. Now you've, you've used that in two different contexts. You've automatically doubled what a kid can do um, with that one little exercise. So that's a good idea. Use it interchangeably like that. If a parent tells you they can do the drink thing, go for the pant, or if you get the pant in, in a therapy session, introduce that trick, that uh, exhalation too. Then if they can do that, try to work on audible inhalation. And that is where you're doing I think of that as my surprised voice, like, <gasps> because, again, same kind of process except they're they're breathing in instead of breathing out. We know every child on our caseload can inhale and exhale. They do it. <laughs> They've done it millions of times. 
you're just putting, a, for in this case, vocalizing, putting your voice with it so that they're doing that little, <gasps> and I use that a lot in therapy when I'm introducing an activity that I'm trying to create that anticipation and excitement. Um, I do it just, you know, now reflexively, whether I even mean to or not. You know, I'm talking to an adult sometimes and, you know, want to go, <gasps> you know, <whatever. laughs> I'm going to say things. You probably don't even notice in conversations when I do that, do you, <laughs> Not anymore. (laughs) But you like that sound, too. You've done that a lot, right? I do that one, yes. I definitely do that one, and kids like that, too. They like it. It's a good one. Um, Other ones that you can work on, and level four, in in all sincerity, is probably my favorite level in this whole process. And this is where I most often start with kids that are nonverbal. And then if they can't do a lot of this, I might back up and do level three. And so, again, when you're reading the book, I'm really careful to say in there, this is not something that you have to begin at level one on day one of every kid that you see and move forward. And for some kids that's appropriate, and for some therapists that's appropriate. They'll need to do it to make sure they cover all the bases. And certainly for a mom who feels like she's going at this alone and really needs structure, a lot of moms might use it in that way. But for most therapists, you're just going to be really really looking at all these different levels, figuring out where a kid is and then where you need to dive in and at what level you need to begin. And so for lots of children that we're seeing on our caseloads who socially they're doing okay, receptive language is moving right along, but they're still not talking. Um, I'm already signing with them. I'm already getting that going. Um, And for kids that are good players, you already know that they can imitate actions with objects because that's how they've learned how to play. So this level four is most often where I start. Do you think that would hold true too? Aren't these the early things that you're doing? Yes. Even if you didn't even really realize you were doing it this way, you are. <laughs> and now you realize it, but maybe ten years ago when we're saying when I'm saying, Try this, try that you know, at that and point I it say, wasn't okay, even concrete. I will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that I still don't take direction I do, but this is pretty much my automatic go to place. Like you said, if their play looks good, if their receptive yeah. language looks good, if their social skills look good. Right. This is where I start. I want to see, can they do any of these early, early, early play things with sounds? To, you right. Know, if they can imitate that, that's a good sign. Yeah, and a lot of times I'm doing this as I'm still teaching new signs. We might have already gotten a handful of signs and we're moving along with signs, and that's that's moving right along and Mom and Dad are on board and we're getting a lot of signs, but I'm still not really hearing any anything that I would think is a word imitation. Now, they may be popping out some words. They may have a handful of little couple little words here and there that they – that they know and use so often, but they're still yeah, not usually imitative. Usually one word for everything. <laughs> yeah. Duh. Yeah. Or, ba. Yeah. Mama. Uh-huh. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but this is often the go-to level where I start is this level four. And a lot of speech therapists are surprised with that because they think that you go straight to functional words. And for some kids, I think, gosh, if they were ready to work on functional words and were there already, they don't, they wouldn't need me. Mom would have figured right. out how to do that. Right. Or if I'm replacing a speech therapist and she's gotten nowhere, I think, boy, I bet she tried words. Let me let me back up. <laughs> let me mm-hmm. see what in between step this kid might need. So we've already talked about pointing. We've talked about that audible inhalation. Not pointing, I'm sorry, panting. Um, 
squealing or screaming as a part of a game or your routine is another really easy vocalization for kids to get. Now, parents don't always appreciate this. (laughs) You're working on teaching her how to scream on purpose. Sometimes they miss the whole therapeutic value. So you have to really teach it. Almost always do it with uh, row, row, row your boat in that second verse. Is that how you do it, too? Do you use a little scream or squeal? You know, I usually use it with, like, the Tupperware blocks that I put things inside and when I have a snake or a spider or a bug Uh inside, that's my scared. Yeah. Yeah. I put it on them and I say, ooh, 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 and then I hope that they're going to try and put it on on me. And sometimes I'll do I'll If they don't put it on me automatically, I take it, put it on them, and go, ah, you know, I scream. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I do it, too, because it's in context and it's communicative. And, boy, do they think it's funny right. when you're doing that. And, again, remember the reason is you are teaching them that they control when they use their voices. And for most of the kids that we're seeing, they already have had two years of practice at screaming. They already have that, but it's it's reflexive. They do it when they cry. They don't really realize that they can use that in a different context or when it's more volitional or meaning that they purposefully initiate that. Our little guys that are severely and moderate, moderate to severe apraxia, or I think I probably said that wrong, but that level of, of motor planning difficulty, it's so funny that they, again, they can really do some of this stuff. Like, you you know, a mom might say to me, oh, boy, she's got that down pat. She really knows how to scream. But if you try to get her to do it when she's thinking about it or do it in imitation of you, she can't do it. Mm-hmm. So, again, you're taking things that they can already do on some level and you're making it purposeful and you're making it more controlled. And for a lot of our toddlers, they have to internalize this level before they're able to move on to words. And so this, again, is another nice in-between step that we teach. Other things that happen here, uh, and again, uh, even in typical development, you'll see a lot of this, like the fake cough. A lot of times I'll be working with a two-year-old And I'll be modeling a fake cough, and darn if the baby doesn't do it. If the eight-month-old sitting in the, you know, little bouncy seat over there, I'm trying to get the brother, you know, and I'm, (coughs) you know, just being silly if we're playing with babies, or I might say, or I don't know, we could do it with animals, we could do it with anything. And the two-year-old can't do it, but the baby can. And it's something that uh, I remember my babies doing that. Did your girls like to fake cough, Kate? I believe they did, yeah. They were good imitators. Yeah. And so fake coughing is one. Fake sneezing is hysterical. (laughs) And, again, it's something that I do... With every kid, even if they were, if, even if they're kind of already at the word level, I can hardly stop myself from doing a fake sneeze, especially when I'm playing with potato heads. I put the potato head hat on my head, and we're talking about hat, and then all of a sudden I do a big ah 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 chew, and really make it like it's totally unexpected, especially the first few times I do it, and. Oh my gosh, kids love that. And kids that I that I think, you know, he doesn't have a prayer of imitating this. He has not shown me at all that he would be able to do it. And then all of a sudden they do it and you think, Oh yes, 
I've got you now. <laughs> I've You're got mine. you now. You're going down. Yeah. One of my yeah, early ones, Laura, I don't know if you use this as much as or at all, but I have so many kids imitate this one. And this one I came upon really because I was trying to come up with a way to say to a kid, you have to stop and think. You know, uh-huh. when we're doing a puzzle or uh-huh. I'm trying to get them to do something that's a little bit more cognitive-based um, or a little bit challenging for them, I put my finger to my chin and then I say, hmm. Hmm. I knew what you were going to say, yeah. <laughs> I have so many kids who do that one. That's a cute one. It's really, uh, really a, cute. Well, you know, like I said, I started it because I wanted a way to say, no, you can't cram it in the wrong hole. You have to think. You know, right. <laughs> look. That's the whole developmental interventionist in you, huh? Working right. on that you, cognition. You have to stop and think a second. You can't just force it in because you want it to go in. And so I would model, no, you know, I'm looking, I'm thinking. You have to think here, you know. And I thought, well, you can't tell a kid, a two-year-old, you have to think. I mean, I right. guess you can, but I don't think it would be particularly useful. They meaningful. wouldn't know what you're talking about, yeah. Right. So I decided, hmm, and I was doing it in I a love very it. exaggerated, goofy, you know, and I tap my, my chin like, hmm, let's see. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll say, that's let's see. I just go, hmm. And so many kids pick that up. The parents always think it's hilarious. I guess I do, too, but... It's, it's cute. really cute, and it's, it fits in so nicely here because it is a really early vocalization that they could imitate. It's not quite a word yet, and I love that you're pairing that gesture with it. And so mm-hmm. many of these these things that we've talked about really do work with a gesture. And so if you've had a kid hold his arms up like he's scared, say you were targeting that for a kid who wasn't really ready to do vocalizations yet, you were just still kind of looking at him back at level two, where he's imitating communicative gestures, and you might have a kid who's already thought it was funny to imitate your body movement when you're acting like you're scared, because don't you put your hands up or do something like that when you're Uh, screaming about the bug? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. both up with my palms open. I don't know why that means scared. Yeah, it means like, don't you get that bug near me? That's what yeah. I. Yeah. Ah, like stop. Yeah. Uh-huh. That that's when these vocalizations are really powerful because again, if a kid has already done the gesture, the body part of that, if you can move him into doing the vocalization part, and again, a lot of times I'll think, gosh, he doesn't even realize he said that yet. She doesn't even really realize she's doing that yet. And and that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to become that automatic and so for a kid who can't imitate a word to save her life she might be able to get it in this context and so it's always and I talk about this in the book about pairing a gesture with these level four activities because even if a kid can't quite get the vocalization yet they're almost always if you're starting here and if it's if they're really developmentally ready, they will be able to do the gesture part of that, and you'll be able to work that vocalization part in. And, again, so critical, especially for our little friends that we suspect motor planning, is for them to be able to pair that together so that it almost, again, pops out before they even try to think of it. And before you know it, they have five or six or ten of these little tricks, and they're strengthening those motor pathways. They're really learning I control what comes out of my mouth and words are too hard 
So you have to start way back here at this kind of level. You've already talked about fake snoring and pretending like you're asleep. That's so much fun for toddlers. They think that's hysterical. Pretending to eat, we've talked about that, that or whatever sound you want to do with that. Um, raspberries are a part of this, blowing raspberries, and that traditionally you know, means that you're going to stick your tongue out between your lips and blow that sound. Boy, don't typically developing babies learn how to do that. You know, yeah. six to nine months, they're doing that. You know, they may even do it with food, you know, mm-hmm. much to the dismay of their moms, yeah. But teaching that or modeling the raspberries, and I've talked about this on the show before, Pamela Marcella's, um 11 different raspberries that she teaches. It might be 15. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. In front of me, But she talks about in her Apraxia Uncovered book how teaching raspberries really work, helps a child learn place of articulation. And, again, that means where in the mouth you make the speech sounds. And it's such good theory and, again, so easily introduced into our play routines with toddlers. So if you've never thought about that raspberry stuff before, all of that um, can be found. Um, I've, I've put it in this approach as well because I think it's really fun and kids really, really like that sound too, don't they? Oh, yeah. Like you said, parents don't always love it. And a lot of times parents will say, just like you said with some of the screaming, oh, he can do that. But, again, sometimes they can do it. They just can't do it in imitation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have to talk to parents about that, and you have to fill in that blank for them. And a lot of times we just naturally assume that everybody gets that connection, and you have to go out of your way to be sure that you're saying, you know, the part that he can't yet do is the whole imitation part. So I really, instead of us working on all these words with him, we're going to get there. But first we need to meet him where he is. We need to start with what he can already do and then have him do that in imitation of us so that he gets that he's copying us and then we can move him toward words. So, you know, we, I, when a mom says that to me, I say, yes, isn't that great? And let me tell you how we're going to use it. And it, it makes a connection for her. Sometimes I feel like I'm having to draw a picture. If she looks still like she doesn't believe me, I keep on talking about it. Sometimes I think, boy, just wear her down until <laughs> <So> she <laughs> understands. Okay. I believe you. Yeah, whatever, Laura. All right, we'll do it. committed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about it. That whole they can do it, but they can't imitate it thing, as they get beyond this level, that becomes so clear when you're using words. So often kids can occasionally pop out a word, and then we have the parents or sometimes the therapist saying, he can, he just won't. And they kind of (sighs) skip that whole, well, he can sometimes every once in a while when the stars align, but he can't begin to imitate it. Right, and it's not consistent. And I use this term all the time. It's not under his purposeful control. Mm -hmm. We want a kid to know that he can do it and you know, most of the time we're able to get that. And at level four, I don't look for a kid just to do one or two of these things, or really at any level before we're moving on. I want them to have, you know, ten of these different kinds of things that we're doing. 
and that's another thing. A lot of times we'll start with a kid, and a mom will say, you know, she'll say he can do a couple of these little tricks, or it'll just kind of come up that she's telling me this stuff, and I say to her, that's great. That's where he is. This is where we need to work to expand. You know, let me give you some additional ideas for what you can work on with that. I got an email this week from, or actually it was a comment on the website, and it's from a therapist. I think she said she works in Pennsylvania. I think I might be misquoting that. And she said that in their early intervention program now that they get in so much trouble for taking toys or even for playing with the kid with his own toys in a session that they want it to be so consultative that they are really only talking with the mom and never doing anything with the kid. And I think that's so sad. And, boy, we have talked about that a lot. But I said, you know, you still, I'm, I don't even think we have time to get into all of what I told her. Uh, any, if you want to read that discussion, for anybody who's listening, you can read that. Uh, it's directly on the website at teachmetotalk.com, and it's over in the right-hand column. I can't remember her name. I, I think it was Lisa was her name. And So you can find her comment and read my reply there. But this is the kind of thing that if you work in a program like that where you pretty much feel like your hands are tied... <laughs> This book will really, really, really solidify advice that you are giving parents so that if they say to you, well, you know, now that I think about it, he does kind of make a couple of, like that drinking sound that you mentioned, he does do that, and I have heard him fake cough, like, you know, his dad was sick two weeks ago and he coughed, and you can say, all right, here we go. Let me give you some ideas of what other things, and let's think about how you can plug those into your daily routines and and still share information that way. Now, again, is this my first choice of how we should do therapy? Is that the model that I think works? No, but I also don't think it works to just go play with the kid and do direct intervention with a two-year-old without ever talking to his parents. So we've got to figure out a way to marry those ideas without, you know, they, they, those approaches need to go together. That's when we see the most improvement with kids, when we're working and figure out what works with the kid. And then when we help a parent, transition that so that the parent is doing it and the other thing that I've really started to write about and talk about with therapists who write me about that and I say what what more meaningful daily routine do toddlers have than play you know play is how kids learn everything so if you've got a program that's so focused on you getting everything in daily routines you know ding 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 we have a winner play Mm -hmm. you're teaching parents how to play and we really have to do a better job of selling that to program administrators that don't easily make that connection or people that are so black and white that they just read that research without really understanding child development and without really understanding therapy. And we have to help make that connection and, and push back and give reasons why. No, this is why this is important for me to show this parent. I have to model how to play. I have to figure out what works. This is why I need my toys. I need my supplies. And push back. And, you know, ethically, nobody can tell you how to be a speech pathologist with that one particular child unless they go with you. And federally, Kate, doesn't it say in the federal regulations that nobody can make decisions for a child about his therapist except for his therapy team? I think that's correct, yes. Yeah. And so that would be how I would push back with those kinds of arguments if you're working in a program like that. Um, 
And my parting advice to her was, you know, she said, some days I just want to quit. I don't feel like I'm effective. And we all have that decision to make about what we can and won't do in a program. So hopefully that will give you some things to think about if you are struggling with that decision and figuring out how you're going to make that work in your practice. Um, and I know lots and lots of states that's that's becoming the norm. And I hate that. I hate that for kids because I think a lot of a lot of kids are going to miss out on big opportunities to make huge developmental gains because we're not going to get to work with them in the way that, that would be most productive. And that's really, really, really sad. You know, to me, the whole, that whole theory fails to factor in that these are not kids who respond to your average approach. You know, I mean, right. you have to, as you said, figure out. And even though you, you in particular, have all of this theory and all of these things to try and approaches, right. and you've spent more hours than the vast majority of therapists thinking about it and writing about it, but even you have to go right. in and say, now let's try this, let's try this. And Exactly. It doesn't matter how great of a parent you have. There are very few parents who are equipped to do it the way that you've been doing it for the last 20 years and got a right. master's degree in it. You know, I mean, right. I mean, not to mm-hmm. fault any parent, but seriously, you know. <laughs> it's a job. It's a whole separate job. It, it you is. You a whole different college say, degree okay, for now it. Okay, tell yeah. the parents. You know, <laughs> I know. Just tell them what to do. And yeah, and that's what I said. You know, it may come to where we just have programs of service coordinators who give parents books. You know, I want to say, if your state's going to that, hey, have I got a book for you? Have I got a DVD for you? I will be glad to sell your state thousands and thousands of DVDs and books because if that's all it takes, mm-hmm. ooh, I can solve that problem for you. But most of the time, I mean, the point of early intervention programs is so that you build that one-on-one relationship with a kid and with his family and that you take into consideration all the extraneous things, all the circumstances, all the history, and then you apply these really specific strategies. And, and like you've just said, not, you know, we don't have a cookbook approach. We don't have something that works for every kid. And that's what makes this job so great is because we actually have clinical skill and clinical judgment, and we know when something doesn't work, let's try this, let's try this, let's try that. And I absolutely hate that states are taking that away from therapists, and I think it's horrible for children, and I hope that therapists that do have the personality and the the spunk to be able to say no this is why we've got to put both of these approaches we still need some direct treatment and we still need parent education we can't have one without the other and i hope that we can take our programs back and really 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 talk about that and really you know we the reason that this that this whole push has come into being is because a lot of us have done a terrible job with parent education. And so then program administrators see that therapists just go into a home and do their hour of therapy and then leave and that parents aren't following through and kids aren't making progress. So then they've been forced to go to this completely new model. And so that always happens with change. And and we just need to figure out a way not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and Mm -hmm. make it all come together. 
as uh, one cohesive approach because I really do think you need both parts and I don't care how many studies I read or people that get in my face about that you have to have both parts you absolutely do you really can't have one without the other and Kentucky as most states are is moving in that direction but doesn't sound like it's nearly as extreme as Pennsylvania yet so right let's be thankful for that as for as long as it lasts there we go. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm almost out of voice, and we okay. are out of time for today. Uh, we won't have a show next week, but the week after next, we're going to pick back up. Today we did Level 3 and Level 4. Hopefully next week or the, in two weeks we can zip right through. There are eight levels in this approach, in case you're wondering, and we're going to talk about all eight of them, and we'll pick back up in two weeks. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, talk Laura. to you then. Go, okay, UK. Bye. Yeah, bye.